The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, it's time to open the Bible together, as we do every Lord's Day, spending an extended time in the Scriptures. And so let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 begins a three-chapter-long section of teaching that Jesus gives called the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning, we are moving out of the Beatitudes that we have been spending uh, considerable time in. We're moving out of the Beatitudes into the next section of teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. So, we are opening this morning to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13. That's on page 810 if you haven't already found it yet, but please do uh, turn with us to God's Word. This morning, we look at one of the most probably well-known metaphors of the Christian life. A metaphor that gets picked up and employed in various other ways. The picture and metaphor, the imagery of salt and light. Salt and light. Salt and light. Now, these terms are used, I think, and picked up in our culture in various ways. And it's interesting, if you think about it for a moment, that these terms are often used, depending on the context, both positively and negatively. It's possible to use these word pictures, these word metaphors, uh, positively and negatively. Positively speaking, people sometimes say, oh, those folks, you know, they're the salt of the earth. And they're trying to pick up on what Jesus means here. But they're saying a positive thing about them. Those folks are the salt of the earth. But it's also possible to use the same metaphor in a negative sense, isn't it? If you describe someone as having a salty personality... Uh, that's not necessarily a positive uh, aspect of their character. It's, it's possible to take the same word picture and apply it in different directions, both positively and negatively. And that's helpful to us this morning because we will see Jesus use this word picture of salt and light. And we will see that these pictures mean both positive and negative things. And we want to understand that because I think it's clear that the unbelieving world around us, a secular, uh, secularizing culture, increasingly does not know what to do with Christianity. They don't know what to make of us and our thoughts and our beliefs and our ethics and our goals. The unbelieving world doesn't really know what to do with us and confusion is added when Christian believers don't really know how we are supposed to relate to the world around us. So there is oftentimes confusion going in both directions. The world doesn't know what to do with the church and the church doesn't know what they're supposed to do in the world. And confusion abounds. Well, to clarify that confusion, Jesus speaks these words, and we want to hear the words of our Lord Jesus, who speaks here as the king of his kingdom to his kingdom disciples with instruction about what it looks like to live in the world. And we want to hear the words of the king this morning. So let's pray and ask God's blessing on his word, and then we will hear it together. Well, Lord God, we bow now in your presence, thankful that you have called us here, thankful that you have gathered us here, that we have declared your praises, that we have heard your call to confess our sins and receive the assurance of your pardoning grace. 
We thank you, Lord, that yours is a kingdom that is advancing into the world. And now we pray that we would hear the words of the king speaking to his kingdom disciples. And so, Lord, because we desire to be those kingdom disciples, help us, Lord, to have ears that are ready and able to hear the word of the king this morning. And so we pray by your Holy Spirit, illuminate our minds, give understanding to your word that we might believe and not only believe, but obey. And so, Lord, we pray, rest upon us now as we hear your word. In the name of the King, our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. And now hear God's word from Matthew in chapter 5 at verse 13 through 16. This is the word of God. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. So may he write its eternal truth upon our hearts today that we might hear and believe and obey the scriptures. Keep your Bible open there as we see Jesus speaking to us. I want us to remember what Jesus is doing, why we have this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew is distinct from some of the other Gospels in that it really focuses on Jesus' blocks of teaching. And the whole Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is the first block of teaching in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus, in an authoritative capacity, addresses those who desire to be his followers with the words of what it means to live in his kingdom. Now, we have been spending all of our time so far in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, namely the Beatitudes, those very short statements where Jesus is explaining what it means to truly be blessed in light of living as a kingdom citizen. And so we saw those various statements where Jesus is focusing on our Christian character and how following Jesus shapes our character in such a way that it calls us to be a more sincere kingdom people living in the world for the sake of the kingdom of Christ, focusing on who we are. So the Beatitudes focus on who we are. Jesus transitions out of the Beatitudes now, first of all with this metaphors of salt and light, and says, now that you understand who you are supposed to be in my kingdom, now let me teach you about what you are supposed to do in my kingdom. So the Beatitudes focus on who we are in Christ as kingdom citizens. These metaphors of salt and light focus on what we are supposed to do. They focus on Christian conduct and the influence that the kingdom of God is supposed to have on the world. Now, if you scan back just a few verses ahead of this section of where we are in verse 13, you'll find that Jesus concluding the Beatitudes with this note about Kingdom disciples who live in the world but as citizens of my kingdom will experience 
persecutions and sufferings and the world will not always appreciate your take on things and your morals and your ethics, but you are blessed when you obey me even in the face of a world that does not obey. And as we come out of the Beatitudes, it might leave us wondering, boy, this, this kingdom business, it's, it's really not much. We're supposed to face persecution and sufferings. What good is being a citizen of the kingdom in light of the world Jesus comes right out of the Beatitudes to answer that question. What good is it to be a kingdom citizen in the world? Let me tell you. He gives this picture. And the focus is, of course, on salt and light. And we'll consider what that means. But I want you to notice right away in verse 13, Jesus making a statement of reality. He's making a statement of reality when he says in verse 13, You are salt and light you are salt and light notice that jesus doesn't say you might be salt and light he doesn't say you might become salt and light he is making a statement of reality to say you are this you are this salt and light these indispensable household commodities and what we need to do living in the 21st century is we need to try to hear these words of Jesus as the disciples would have heard them sitting at his feet in the first century. He uses these word pictures of salt and light, and salt and light were, to the life of a first century Palestinian disciple, very particular things serving very particular purposes. Jesus is saying, What salt and light are to the life of the first century Palestinian Christian believer is what Christians are supposed to be to the society in which they live. Now we'll explain what that means, but Jesus is saying as you understand salt and light, then you understand your role in the world. So we want to ask two questions, very simple questions of Jesus this morning as he teaches what seems on the surface to be quite clear, and really the passage kind of explains itself, but let's ask the question first of all, Jesus, what do you mean? What do you mean when you say we are salt and light? What do you mean? And then secondly, what does it matter? Okay, two questions. What does it mean and what does it matter? So first of all, what does Jesus mean when he uses this picture, verse 13, of salt, verse 14, light? Now, It might seem immediately apparent, but again, we have to understand how it would have been heard in the first century. First of all, Jesus says, you are salt. Now, what is the most immediate thing that comes to mind when you think of salt? You probably think of table salt, right? Uh, And you think, what is the purpose of table salt? We think when Jesus perhaps says, you are salt, he is speaking of the means by which salt enlivens flavors it enhances flavors is jesus saying you are the zest of life in one sense he might be saying that but it is likely not the primary point that jesus is making although it is legitimate to say that as christians we draw out and enhance the flavor of the world perhaps it's true to zest or to season but that's not likely what jesus was emphasizing in the ancient world The primary function of salt is for the purpose of preservation, to prevent decay. 
Now, in a world that didn't even conceive of refrigeration, salt is used to preserve food. And when Jesus uses the imagery of salt, he is talking about the prevention of or slowing down of the inevitable process of decay. Decay is a reality, but salt prevents and slows down that reality. And so Jesus is saying that you, as a citizen of my kingdom, live in a world that is decaying. Decay is all around you in a fallen world, and you, as my disciples, have an impact and an influence of good upon the world as you slow down and prevent the process of decay. Now again, Jesus is not telling us to become salt. He is saying you are salt, and because you are salt, this is true of you. And I think one of the things that we process as we see this imagery of salt is to say, you know, oftentimes as a Christian believer, I feel small and insignificant, and I feel like I don't make a difference in the world around me. But salt is a small thing that if you like, fights above its weight class. Its influence is far greater than its size. The magnitude of its influence far outweighs its individual scope. Salt is cheap. Salt is a minimal thing. But salt has unusual properties that far exceeds its values. And Christians who live in the world in light of the Beatitudes will have a preserving impact upon society that left to itself will rot, deteriorate, and die. But those who live the blessed life in the midst have this impact. You make an impact, Jesus is saying, that is like salt. It's also like light, he says in verse 14 and following. Now, Maybe perhaps call to mind the fact the Bible teaches us that Jesus is the light of the world. That's from John chapter 8. John chapter 1 also told us that the true light of Jesus Christ comes into the world, but people didn't respond to the light because they prefer the darkness. But coming into faith and trust in Jesus Christ means to be associated with the true light of the world. Jesus says, you are that light. You share in my light, which is the light of the world. Now, remember that Jesus is again speaking to people in a world without electricity. And so light is not maybe taken for granted the way it is for us. People living oftentimes in more agricultural rural communities where they're familiar with darkness. The kind of darkness where you can put your hand in front of your face and you can't even see it because it gets so dark out at night without any other kinds of artificial light. Now, when Jesus says light, and we start to associate light and darkness, I think one of the things that we begin to consider is the light of the stars and the light of the moon. But Jesus in this picture is not talking about light, which is natural to the world. He's not talking about the stars. He's not talking about the moon. He is talking about light which comes into the world. This light in this case is like the context of an oil lamp. Oil that's poured in and a wick that is lit. And maybe the collective gatherings of oil lamps in the city produce a signifying light that stands against the darkness of night. But the imagery of light in the world is not talking about stars. It's talking about oil lamps which are in darkness otherwise and illuminate the darkness. 
So what that means is that the world left to itself is shrouded in darkness and in and of itself it does not possess light. But Christian believers are called to be that foreign element of light in a world that is otherwise in darkness as an oil lamp is lit and illuminates the night. See, the reality here is that because of darkness, things don't make sense. And things are confusing morally, ethically. People cannot see and darkness is disorienting. And when light comes into darkness, the darkness goes away and illumination happens. Right? If you turn on the lights in a shed and all the grasshoppers go flocking away and the mice scatter away, illumination of light has the impact of scattering the darkness and the elements of darkness. Jesus knows that when light comes into the world, it causes a reaction. It reveals, it illuminates. He uses this picture of the city that is set upon a hill and a light that's set on a lampstand. Now this this imagery is oftentimes used, city on a hill. Uh, It's very famous in American history. In 1630, the soon-to-be citizens of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, uh, under the direction of the Puritan pastor John Winthrop, he preaches this sermon of the city on a hill where he thinks of this new colony as Jesus' words, the city on a hill, a model of Christian charity. He preaches about what could be as they are on the ship, the Arabella, about to set sail to the shores for this new place. Now, most people cite the words of John Winthrop and the city on the hill as the, the, the case in point for American exceptionalism. And don't get me wrong, I think America is likely the greatest nation in all of world history, but Jesus in Matthew 5.14 is not anticipating the United States of America. Jesus is speaking about how the world is transformed through the presence of sincere Christian disciples that illuminate the darkness The sincerity of personal faith that is lived out for the world to see is the point that Jesus is making. Without the influence of the gospel, the world is left to its darkness. Now, I imagine that you might perhaps have some examples that come to mind of the way light illuminates and the influence of the church or the influence of Christians upon society, uh, but one that came to mind this, this past week for me was uh, in seminary. I had a classmate, and she was going to seminary because she wanted to get more theological instruction because she had a ministry of going up and down Route 1 in Boston, which Route 1 in Boston is littered with, quote, gentlemen's clubs. It's the antithesis of gentlemen, of course. And Bonnie's ministry, as a female, because a male is not likely going to have this ministry, she would go into strip clubs and befriend the women and try to encourage them that there was more to life than selling of one's self. That Jesus could care for someone like you. And Bonnie is like five foot two. She's a short little gal. But she was a powerhouse of light going into very dark places with the gospel in the name of Jesus saying there is more to life 
And I think of Bonnie when I think of the illumination that light brings into the darkness. Now, I think we hear that and we say, boy, you know, I'm not doing stuff like that. And I'm not even sure if my life is of any great consequence whatsoever, let alone something so significant as a specific ministry like that. So we want to ask the question, now that we understand what Jesus means, what does it matter? What does Jesus' picture of salt and light matter to us, 21st century Christians living in a world where we flip a switch and have electricity and who have clear accessibility to sodium chloride in any form that we want? What does this mean? Well, again, Jesus is using these pictures to describe the decay, slowing, darkness-reducing impact on the world that the church is supposed to have. The world needs what it does not want. You think about that? The world needs what it does not want, and Christian believers are called to interact in the world and with the world, and when we do... When we hear the call to be salt and light, we experience all sort of hesitations and temptations that actually keep us from doing what Jesus says we do. There are things that we are weighed down by. We don't want to be salt and light, even though Jesus says you are. And we say, no, 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 Lord, listen to this. Let me, let me tell you why that can't be true of me. I think the primary temptation is we simply want to blend in. We have this temptation to blend in. We don't want to stick out. But Jesus says, your distinction as a Christian believer is actually one of the most important things about you. You are different than the world around you. And that's not something to be ashamed of. It is something that actually keeps decay from happening and brings illumination in the darkness. That's why Jesus addresses what happens when salt loses its saltiness and light is covered up. When salt loses its saltiness and light is covered up, the point is that these things aren't doing their fundamental purpose that they were intended to do. Jesus says, if salt loses its saltiness, it's useless. Now, the kind of salt the first century would be used to, big chunks that would have to be broken down. And the, the idea of salt losing saltiness might seem a little bit strange because when we think of salt, again, we're used to table salt. And salt is only ever salt. And uh, somebody else had to tell me this. I don't just know this. I got a bad grade in chemistry. Okay. Sodium chloride is apparently a very stable compound. Sodium chloride doesn't just lose its saltiness, but the picture in the first century is this big rock of salt that actually has other elements introduced to it, and the sodium chloride, which itself stays stable, runs out of that chunk of salt, so that what was once salty is now diluted and therefore no longer salt. Jesus says all that's good for is getting tossed on the street and trampled down because it's not doing what it was supposed to do because it was diluted. What was once purified is now destroyed in pollution. And with the example of light, Jesus again is thinking of these oil lamps. The oil lamp, the very source of light, it doesn't make any sense to light the one source of light and then cover that source. Otherwise, why light it, right? We should hear these metaphors and hear that doesn't make any sense. We would never do that to answer the fact 
that when you and I keep quiet about our Christian faith, and when you and I hesitate to speak, and when you and I are embarrassed to open our mouths, it is as ridiculous as covering up that lamp. Or to say it a different way, how ridiculous is this if the fire trucks show up at the house burning and all the firemen kind of stand back and cross their arms and say, boy, somebody should do something about this. That would be the Christian believer who in the name of fear, out of concern for standing out, keeps their mouth closed saying, boy, somebody should do something about this. And Jesus says, you are the someone. And the something that is to be done is the light of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. So, if we believe that we're not actually going to make any difference, if we're tempted to blend in because we're not so sure it's going to make any difference, if we say, I'm just too simple, I'm too simple of a person, I'm far too common, Jesus didn't say, you are the gold of the earth. Right? As if to say, you are rare and exclusive. He says, you're salt because it is a commodity. It's common. And the commonality of its saltiness is actually what makes this difference because you don't have to be some extraordinary Christian. You don't have to be extraordinarily gifted to have an impact in the world. Just like salt, which isn't of itself that big of a deal, makes all the difference in a food dish. Common elements have significance far above their face value. That's why he uses salt. And so if you don't believe that you are significant enough to make any difference, that's why he used salt in the first place. Another reason why we are tempted to blend in, I think, is because it's harder to talk with people who disagree with us, right? Now, some of you are especially enjoyable of disagreeing with people when you like to argue and whatnot, but, but most of us don't thrive on disagreements, right? We don't go looking for troubles all the time. Now, in a very small sense, I was given an example of this this past week. Mick and I were up in Wisconsin at a, a preaching conference, and we were with people other Christian believers, of course, but people from different theological traditions and denominations than us. And I was sitting across from this guy who was talking to me like he had met an exotic animal when he met a Presbyterian. Because they were predominantly Baptists, which is great, but we, he didn't understand uh, you know, a lot, and there was kind of this reciprocity of trying to figure each other out, but it is harder to talk to people who disagree with us and there was this kind of hindrance to our conversation at times because he didn't know much about Presbyterianism. So we had this conversation. Now, that is a, a very small example, though, because it gets amplified when the difference between us isn't the kind of church we go to, but whether or not we go to church, right? Not how we practice our faith in terms of denominationalism, but if we practice our faith in terms of Christianity, and if you think about it this way, God calls together the church one day out of seven. Which means you predominantly spend a majority of your time not in explicit communion with the people of God. Which says something about a scope of influence and the purpose of scattering the church throughout the week. Why? Because if salt stays in the shaker, it's not doing its job. Right, And the church is to be scattered to all the world as we interact with people who don't agree with us. As we interact with people who don't share our faith convictions. 
And so we're tempted to blend in because we don't believe we're making any difference. We tend to blend in because it's harder to talk with people who disagree with us. And I also think that we prefer to blend in oftentimes because we don't want to stand out because Christians who are usually the best at standing out are oftentimes the most annoying and harsh in the way they stand out. They do so in arrogant and annoying ways. But bad examples of Christian faithfulness is not an excuse to reject Jesus' command. Just because you know someone who is a jerk in the name of Jesus doesn't mean you should not live in the name of Jesus. We are not to conceal the truth that we know, the truth of who we are, the truth of what we do. Your everyday life matters then. Do you know what this means? You see how practical it becomes. If you're a boss... The way you fairly compensate your employees. If you are an employee, the way you uh, work honestly and therefore not rob your employer by being lazy. If you, among your coworkers, are the first one to lend aid to another coworker, the first one who is unwilling to lend your laugh to lewd and inappropriate jokes or perverted speech. You, as a Christian believer, in the sphere of your influence, are as salt and light when you have a preserving impact. When you walk into a room and the conversation changes because your coworkers moderate their speech because of your presence. And if you're tempted to feel awkward and out of place as a result of that, Jesus is saying it's a good thing because you are preserving these people from the decay of what will come upon them if you weren't present. If people moderate their speech in your presence, if people don't use the name of Jesus as a cuss word in your presence, that's a good thing. It shouldn't make you feel uncomfortable. It should make you feel thankful that you are fulfilling your calling in this life. You as a Christian believer make an impact on the world by being distinct from the world. In a culture that doesn't want to make distinctions, where everything is equal, God calls us to be salt in a society that has distaste. God calls us to be light in a society that prefers the darkness. The way you live, the way you think, your worldview, as it is governed by the word of God in obedience to Jesus, is actually the means of God blessing the world through you. So, Jesus is going to continue, and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is all about him saying, look, here's what, here's what else what it looks like to live in my world as a kingdom citizen. But the point is this, that you are salt and light to the world for the sake of the world in the name of preservation and illumination so that people will give glory to your Father in heaven and perhaps even join you in faithfulness to the King of Kings. I don't know about you, but I agree that it's not always easy to do all of this. But the question that Jesus wants you to be able to answer is this. Is it worth it? Is faithfulness to Jesus worth more to you than the acceptance and approval of the world? That's the question. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for its instruction. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit you would apply this word to our hearts, that you would convict us where we need it and encourage us where we need it. And so, Lord, help us to grow by means of the grace of your word, we pray 
In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.